Romans chapter 16, the very, very end of this magnificent book. It's a doxology, a closing celebration, a closing praise, a closing comments glorifying God for His magnificent gospel. It's been a couple of years now that we have been studying through the book of Romans and we finally come to the very end today. And, you know, as we begin to think about these few verses, I would ask a basic question, just looking back over the scope of everything that we've studied, what of everything that we've talked about, what is the most important doctrine? The most important doctrine that we have discussed, the most important that's been disclosed to us in the book of Romans, what would you say would be the capstone? Paul, of course, has been rich in detail throughout this book, reveling in things like the righteousness of God and how, although all mankind, he says, is bound in unrighteousness, we're born into this darkness We're born under the wrath of God. Through the gospel, the righteousness of God can be ours. He says it can be accredited to our account because of faith. So you have that wonderful doctrine of righteousness. You have the doctrine of justification, whereby previously we stood before God guilty, but because of Christ and our faith in Him, we can be justified. We can stand before God just through our faith in Christ. You have the beautiful doctrines, not only of righteousness and justification, but sanctification, how God is working out His salvation in our lives, bringing us out of, or moving us out of, you might say, a life of sin and death into a life of godliness. There's a doctrine of preservation. There's a doctrine of election. There's a doctrines that are scattered throughout regarding the Holy Spirit and Christ and all of those things. And we've been to the mountain peaks, really, throughout this book, talking about all of these doctrines. If you were to name one of them, what would you say would be the most important? Well, we come to the close of the letter, and which of those doctrines do you think Paul chooses to punctuate his letter with? What do you think he chooses to highlight What we find in these few verses is really a focus, a tremendous focus on what we might call the security of the believer, the doctrine of preservation, the doctrine of perseverance, you might say. He closes out this book and he ascribes all this glory to God based on really a a couple of different themes, but all of them centered on this idea that God is able to establish you. He's able to strengthen you so that you find your way all the way to the very end, to glory. It is essential for Him to keep us and ultimately to bring glory to His name. It only makes sense, if you think about it, of all these wonderful doctrines that Paul highlights, of all the wonderful things that he talks about, it only makes sense that this would be what he punctuates it with because this is the guarantee It makes sense that he would celebrate the power of God, not only to save us, but to keep us. Because what good is a promise without a guarantee? 
We understand that in regular life, right? We understand that in everyday life. We go out and make a, a big purchase. We go out and we get all excited about a new house or we get all excited about a new car and uh, we get jazzed up about that and we go and we talk to the salesperson or the agent or whoever it is and, and we start imagining what it's going to be like to be riding around on those new wheels or opening the door of that new home and we get through all the negotiations and And what do we expect? We expect at some point some sort of guarantee. We want want a title deed if it's on a house. We want a warranty if it's on a car. We want to know that whenever we invest so much into this, that tomorrow someone's not going to come and take it away from us. These big things, these important things, we, we expect and we want some sort of guarantee to them. Well, it works similarly in salvation. We can talk about sanctification. We can talk about justification. We can talk about receiving grace through faith. But if it's here today and gone tomorrow, it's really not great news. This, of course, was the great thing that Paul celebrated back in Romans chapter 8. You remember, he presented, presented all of this to us throughout this chapter in the inevitable context of suffering. You may remember, he says, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We're going to receive an inheritance. We're heirs together with Him. So he says, we're heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, that we might also be glorified with Him. So you have this wonderful truth Indeed, you are the children of God. Indeed, you are heirs of this wonderful inheritance with this caveat that is going to come with suffering. You're not just immediately there. You're not immediately glorified. It's going to follow up, as Christ said. When you follow Him, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and and follow So Christ has laid down His life for us. We lay down our lives to follow Him. He promises to give us eternal life. But then He doesn't just promise that He guarantees it. So Paul can go on in that chapter and say, For those who love God, all things work together for our good. For those who love God, all things work together for our good. Who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And in Romans 8.32, he gives us this assurance. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, moreover, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. So you take all these wonderful doctrines, justification, propitiation, resurrection, whatever, it even, even Christ's intercession, and you wrap it all up in this security. And he goes on, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it's written, 
For your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So to hear all the good news that Paul has shared throughout the book of Romans, to hear all about how the love of Christ has been poured out into our hearts, to hear all the good news about how we're justified before God, where we stand before Him covered in His righteousness, to hear all that, to be filled with all that joy, and then not to have the confidence that you will be able to experience that tomorrow, or to more, uh, more explicitly say it, to not have the confidence that He will, who saved you, He will keep you. It would detract from really all of that joy. Or to say it this way, to encounter what Paul speaks about in Romans 8, the tribulation, the distress, the danger, the sword, to go through all of that stuff, to go through all the suffering that is, that, that is, that is a coupled together with the Christian life and not to have the guarantee of all those precious gifts, well, that would be incredibly discouraging. You'd get in the middle of whatever distress or whatever trial and immediately you are going to be tormented by guilt because you would be convinced that all of your pain and your suffering were the result of God's sin, uh, excuse me, God's wrath against your sin or, or, or result of the fact that God abandoned you. You'd be agonizing in the pain of your conscience. There would be an internal trial that would match the external trial that you're going through. You would be afflicted by all of your shortcomings, by all of your misdeeds, by all of your sins, by all of your iniquities. And it would all be true. All of your unfaithfulness, all of your lack of belief, all of your ongoing struggles with unredeemed flesh, your trial would be multiplied. The plague of your guilt would overwhelm you. You would literally crumble under its weight. I know I would. I'd crumble under the weight of my own sin. I would turn back from following Christ if it wasn't for His sustaining power. You see, Christ not only has to give us all of these precious gifts of salvation, He has to keep us. He has to guard us. Or another way to say this, if Christ doesn't save me, there's no way I can save myself. If Christ doesn't keep me, there's no way that I can keep myself. Because if there's one thing I know, it's this, that if I could lose my salvation, I certainly would. So all of this wonderful stuff about justification, all this wonderful stuff about forgiveness, all this wonderful stuff about redemption, all of it is crowned by this glorious doctrine of security. It's the one that matters the most in the end. The guarantee that's been given to us. The precious promise that will be made to stand. 
Now, this is where Paul goes. This is where he ends it all in Romans 7. He ends it with this doxology, this praise and the glory to God who causes us to stand. Listen to what he says in verse 25. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever and ever through Christ Jesus. Amen. It's a brief doxology. Sometimes I struggle when you come to this, you know, because... You almost can't expand on it. Just, just to read it in all of its beauty is enough. It's a doxology which is basically just a word of praise. And you find these throughout the pages of Scripture. They're, of course, all through the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, and the prophetic writings. You come into the New Testament and you see doxologies opening up in the book of uh, Matthew. You see it in Luke when uh, the angel announces to Mary that she'll have... The, the, the Messiah as her child. When you see the angels in the uh, fields with the shepherds, you see doxologies all over the place. You see doxologies when Christ is entering into Jerusalem and people are hailing Him as the Messiah. And then, of course, you find them punctuating the letters of the New Testament. In Paul and Peter and Jude, you see doxologies. And you know, you find these doxologies, it seems to me, always in the context of either exterior dangers or internal depravity. Or internal, we might say, ongoing struggles with the unredeemed flesh. That seems to always be the case, at least in my own reading. There, there are the, these, these things which we might be uh, led to believe or might lead us to believe that somehow we've lost our salvation, somehow God has abandoned us. You have external trials in your life or you have internal turmoil because of temptation or because of your own struggle with the flesh. And you find these discussions in the New Testament that, that, that the apostles enter into and then from the discussions of these dangers, they break out into these kinds of doxologies. It's almost as if they, they get up to the precipice of falling off the edge and right before they do, they are, they are enraptured with the thought that God would catch them if they were to fall. 1 Peter 5, verses 10 and 11, after some discussion of Satan prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour people, he says to his readers, Peter does, after you have suffered a little while... The God of grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ Jesus will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so you just have this word of praise flowing out of the present suffering that we're in. The fact that Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Praise the Lord. Or 1 Timothy 1, he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as in the foremost, 
Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe to him, uh, believe in him for eternal life. And then immediately, Paul says, Now to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So he's just contemplating the fact that he's the chief of sinners and that God is still displaying this unspeakable grace and he just breaks out in doxology. Or you have Jude, who at the end of his letter is talking about our ministry to people who he says are falling into sin and falling into doubts and falling into all kinds of filth. And he's talking about trying to snatch people out of the fire and being careful that as you are reaching in there to pull them back from their pathway of sin, that you yourself are not burned. Or, or if they're in their defilement, that you aren't defiling yourself as you go about your, your work of reconciliation. You're trying to deal with them, and in all these scenarios, you're grappling with the ongoing realities of brokenness around you and sin all around you and how you can stumble into, even sometimes trying to do a good thing, you can stumble into sin. You've got to be careful, in other words, that you don't fall into temptation and stumble down the same pathway that these people did. And then immediately after contemplating that potential, Jude breaks out in doxology. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And you see these doxologies over and over again, and they all seem to be focused on this idea of, of God and His securing of us, His overcoming of our weaknesses, His overcoming of our dangers, His overcoming of whatever kind of temptations might potentially trip us up. And you get all of this doxology, and it all resounds with the same idea, which is all security comes to us so that all glory goes to God. I mean, that's really what it is. We are the recipients of all of this incredible security so that whenever you face whatever trial you're facing, whatever kind of turmoil you're going through, you go through the trial with the confidence that you will not be lost, that He will hold on to you. And so you go through the trial and you have all the confidence in the security, so you turn around and you give all glory to Christ. That's doxology. You know, of course, the flip side of that is the, um, the reality that's overlooked by so many people is that your praise of God, your glorification of God, your singing to Him will often only be matched to the level that you suffer. So many people don't want to go through those trials. They don't want to go through the difficult times. They don't want to go through the dark seasons. And they don't realize that it's only by going through that time that you are plunged into the depths where you can have this kind of praise, this kind of doxology, 
where you find yourself just absolutely just taken up with the goodness of the Lord. You can't do anything else but sing His praise. You can't do anything else but come forth with all of this magnification of Him keeping you because when you are taken to the very precipice in the, in the trial, that's when you face how weak you are, how little you can rely on yourself, and how much you're prone to stumble. You come to the end of yourself. You come to the realization that if you could lose your salvation, you would. And that's when you feel the power of God. That's when you sense His keeping power like you never have before. And it erupts in doxology. It comes forth in doxology. Well, that's what we have here in Romans 16. You may remember Paul's just finished up this section, particularly in verses 17, 23, where he was talking about those who were troublesome and trying to deceive the hearts of the naive. He assures them that even through satanic attacks, God will soon crush Satan under their feet. And then he follows it up with this, this assurance that no matter what is going on around them, God is able to strengthen and to establish you. He is going to cause you to stand. He's going to cause you to stand. I had the uh, joy last night of sharing dinner with John MacArthur. He was in town and we had an invitation. We went, of course, and took that up. And we were talking about this and just discussing how going through trials deepens your faith that God will build His church. How it deepens your trust how you wouldn't see those kinds of things if you hadn't gone through the trial. How you may not, you may not need to, to trust Him to that level if you hadn't reached the point where you'd come to the end of your resources. Well, this is Paul. He wants us to know that He is able to make us stand. Now, we want to unpack this very briefly today, and I want to do it by showing you three concepts that are bound up here in Paul's praise. Just very briefly, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but three concepts that drive his doxology here. The first one is this, in verse 25. Paul praises the Lord because of the security that comes through his power. The security that comes through his power. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you, to him who is able to strengthen you. As I said earlier, this is a key component to the whole thing, the whole praise. Everything in this doxology modifies really this. Paul is rejoicing in the fact that God has power to strengthen. God has power to establish. It's a verb here that basically means to cause someone to be more firm or unchanging in their belief. That's the way it's used throughout the New Testament. And so most Bible versions translate this word, not only here but in other places, they translate it with the word establish. God's able to establish you. The word is sterizo. We get our word steroids from it. But you can see the way Paul uses it in other places. For example, Second Thessalonians chapter 3 where he writes, The Lord is faithful 
who will establish you and guard you against the evil one. He'll build you up. He will guard you on the outside, you might say, from the attacks of the evil one, and he will establish you on the inside. He will protect you. He will shield you in your walk with him. He'll fill you with hope. It's the same idea. He will strengthen you for the trial so you will not fall. He'll strengthen you so that you're not ultimately overcome. He'll strengthen you so that you will not succumb to the temptations. You will not succumb to the struggles. And in the end, He will bring you to glory. That's what he's saying. After all this entire grand epistle, he wants to cap it off with this assurance to give you this consummate joy, this overflowing confidence, this assurance, this rest, this comfort. In spite of whatever's going on, to overcome your anxiety, to overcome your confusion, to overcome your sadness, to overcome your fear, whatever it might be that you're grappling with through the trial... He says He is able. That's the key idea. He's able. He has the strength. He has the power to do it. We all know the environment we live in, full of trials, full of temptations, full of apostasy and falsehood, full of just a media that's around us that wants to bombard us with lies and deception and worldviews that would draw us away from the gospel I mean, humanly speaking, the pathway is fraught with with dangers and pitfalls and stumbling blocks and iniquity and sin and transgressions. And Paul wants to drill home to us this idea that no matter what is in our, we might say, pathway to heaven, the outcome is inevitable because of his ability, because of his power. You know, we feel this. We go through these times, we have to come face to face with our weaknesses, we have to come face to face with our sinfulness, we have to come face to face with our shortcomings, and it is just enormously burdensome were it not for the grace of Christ keeping us, keeping us. The enemy would love to capitalize on it. He would love whenever, whenever he puts you through whatever He puts you through and you reach your breaking point and you've reacted sinfully and you've responded with unbelief and you've gone down a pathway of whatever it is that has left you with the guilt. He would love to capitalize on that and convince you that you will not make it. That there's some way that you could be separated from Christ. But the gospel, the apostle would have you have no fear. No fear. Listen, if I, if I rested on my own abilities to maneuver through all of those pitfalls, if I rested on my own capabilities to navigate through all of that stuff, if I rested on my own ability to overcome my own flesh, to make up for all of my shortcomings. If I rested on my own whatever, my own righteousness to overcome all the things that I fall into, I mean, I would be dejected. 
But I have confidence in His power to guard, to establish, and to keep. I mean, these are the beautiful words. You remember of John chapter 6 when Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will by no means cast out. I'll by no means cast out. Or he says a little bit later, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So you have the Father giving to the Son all of those who are saved, and the Son receives them, and the Son keeps them, and the Son raises them up on the last day, and none of them fall through the cracks. That's the promise that we have. Like the beautiful chain that we read earlier in Romans 8. Those whom he foreknew and predestined, those are the ones who he called. The ones who he called are the ones he justified. The ones who he justified are the ones he glorified. It's an unbreakable chain. And so this is the capstone, really, of all the salvation. And Paul makes it the capstone of this glorious, glorious letter. Well, we could spend all of our time, we probably spent most of it already just talking about that. But I want to add quickly two more Concepts that are driving, really flowing out of this idea of security and driving this doxology here. Not only does Paul uh, talk about his, his strength to keep us, but he also, there at the end of verse 25, speaks about him sharing this mystery with us, sharing the secrets of the gospel with us. He says, to him who is able to strengthen us, what? According to my gospel and my preaching, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Paul speaking here about his gospel, not saying it's something that originated with him. It wasn't the result of his cleverness. It wasn't the result of his own imagination. But this is the gospel, he means, which was entrusted to him. The one that is distinct from all of the other messages and all the other worldviews and all the other belief systems that are all around the world, this is the message that was given to me, Paul says, and to us as believers. It has been entrusted to us. It is our gospel in that sense. And this gospel is, as Paul says, the source of what strengthens and establishes us. God is establishing you and He's doing it according to the gospel. It is the gospel that causes you to stand. It is based on the truths of the gospel. And it is the means of the gospel and its preaching by which He does it. You see, Paul talks about that here. It is by my gospel or according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ Jesus. The stability doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen any other way. The stability doesn't happen without this gospel and without its proclamation. It does no good for you to just read it one time, hear it one time, and walk away. It takes the continual bathing under it in the preaching of it. That's the, as sometimes people say, the means of grace by which God sustains us through all the trials. And... We might quickly add, there is no other source that can do that. It is only the gospel. It is only the gospel. And Paul emphasizes that by, if you will, setting it apart from everything else. Setting this gospel apart from every other thing that might be uncovered or discovered or imagined or dreamt up or whatever it might be by 
by means of human agency. In fact, he says this was, the gospel was the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Mystery basically referring to something that was previously unknown, or you might say it this way, it is referring to something that is beyond capacity of the human mind to figure out. We don't have time to trace that through the New Testament, but that's what it means. A mystery is something that is beyond the the means or the capacity of the human mind to figure out. It is necessary for it to be revealed. And that's what Paul Paul is saying here. All of this happens... By means of divine revelation. And only by that. That's the only way you'll be established. That's the only way you'll make it through whatever trial you're in. That's the only way that you will be sustained is by this gospel and by its preaching. This is how Paul defines it here. This secret that was kept secret for long ages but is now disclosed. Very similar to the way, that's very similar to the terminology he uses in 1 Corinthians 2 when he says, we impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret wisdom, a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So you see the contrast there. He's saying we are giving a wisdom, we're imparting a wisdom, but it's not a wisdom that comes from the rulers of this age. It doesn't come from them. It doesn't arise from them. They didn't find it. In fact, they're, they're, he says, the ones who are passing away. They're temporal. And their wisdom is temporal. And it's passing And yet Paul says, we have given ourselves to what is a wisdom which God decreed before the ages. It is eternal, it is pre-existent wisdom, it was marked out before all time. These aren't just the theories, the passing theories of the sociologist or the psychologist or the philosopher. They aren't just some subjective impressions that come from a group of religious leaders 2,000 years ago. This is unique wisdom, which Paul says was marked out before eternity. Principles decreed by God, which set, you might say, the boundaries on the nature of wisdom. You understand that? God set the boundaries of wisdom. And so in order to walk in wisdom, you must walk within His boundaries. He determined it. He planned it. In fact, if you read all of 1 Corinthians, he planned it in such a way that his wisdom, which seems like foolishness to the world, is always and constantly confounding the world's wisdom and making it appear as foolish. This wisdom, which formed the substance of Paul's preaching and message, was a secret and hidden wisdom, he says. A truth that humans... Or human understanding cannot discover by itself. And Paul is speaking about truth that only can be grasped from God's revelation. Only adequately grasped once God has revealed it. Well, this is the contrast we see here in Romans 16. 
Paul is contrasting the mystery, verse 26, that was kept secret, but now has been disclosed. A knowledge that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed. Let me ask you a question, just looking at the text. How was it disclosed? How was this wisdom disclosed? Well, it was disclosed, he says, through the prophetic writings. Which prophetic writings? You basically only have two choices, right? You have the New Testament prophetic writings through which the gospel was disclosed, which at this point, when Paul was writing Romans in about 56 AD, there were very few of them which had even been written. Or your other choice, which is probably what Paul has in mind here, Old Testament prophetic writings. Which seems to be his point. In fact, that's the way you remember he opened up the book. Romans 1.1 Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so you have sort of bookends on the book of Romans talking about this gospel which came to us by the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. And so follow what Paul's saying here. He said this was a mystery which was kept secret for long ages, but it was revealed in the Old Testament prophets, which themselves were hundreds of years old by the time you reach the Apostle Paul. What's the point then? Well, Paul's making a contrast, and the contrast, listen to this, the contrast is not so much in time. He's not so much contrasting time as much as he is source. And his point is, is that the world through all of its long ages has never been able to understand the secret of this message. The world through all of its long ages has never been able to uncover the true secrets of this wisdom through all of its education and philosophy and advancement and achievement or whatever it might be. These essential truths, the truths about our salvation, the truths about our gospel, the truths that not only guard us from falling, but strengthen us in our inner man in the midst of trial, those truths are only found through the revealed word. And the world has gone on as long as it has, up to Paul's time, all the way up to our own day. And guess what? It is no closer to finding out anything like these secret truths. And you can wait around your whole life, you can wait around till the end of this age, and you will never find the world able to find these truths, because they're only found through the revealed Word of God. And so this is what Paul's telling us. He's saying this is the source of where all of this comes from. It comes from, it is a gospel, the preaching of Christ Jesus, which he says is according to these prophetic writings which have been made known, he says, to all the nations. It's been made known to all the nations according to what? The command of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith. He is the eternal God. He's the one that existed before anything was known. Throughout all of history and 
mankind's futile quest for wisdom, he has bound up wisdom in himself in eternity. He established his boundaries, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. And so you have this contrast between the temporal, feudal world through all of its long ages, which has not found truth, and the eternal God who decreed that this wisdom be made known through the prophetic writings and then proclaimed to the nations. And all this, all of this, why? To bring about, Paul says, the obedience of faith. He decreed this secret wisdom. He gave it to you and He gave it to me. For what purpose? That it might be proclaimed. That it might be proclaimed to all the nations. That they might be obedient. What is that? I mean, that's the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world, teaching them to do what? Obey all that I've commanded. That's the gospel we preach. We're going out there and our our message is basically obey this gospel. Obey this gospel. Obey it. Come to Christ in repentance and faith. Obey it. Remember, this, by the way, is the way Paul also began his letter. He not only began it talking about the prophetic writings that had promised this gospel, he began it saying that through Christ, he says, quote, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That's Romans 1.5. And so Paul, who began in this very same place, is ending in the same place, praising God, worshiping God for disclosing all of this secret truth contained in the gospel and, and, and worshiping God for his mercy in doing all that. He understands God didn't have to do that. He could have left us in the dark. He could have left us without this message, but he disclosed it and commanded that it be proclaimed everywhere in order that everyone might have the call to be obedient to it. All that sort of brings us to the third concept that drives Paul's doxology here, and that is simply this. It is the singularity of his wisdom. The singularity of his wisdom. He says in verse 27, to to the only wise God. To the only wise God. Be glory forever and ever through Christ Jesus. Amen. I love that. I love the only wise God. As if there are others, right? I mean, he's the only God. But Paul ascribes to him this title in order to emphasize that he is the only source of wisdom. You understand that? He is the only source of wisdom. You say, no, no, no. I think I can take a little bit of the Bible and I can mix it in with this wisdom and that wisdom and I got this class over here and I got this guru over here. No, no. He's the only wise God. He's the only source of wisdom. In Him alone. As Paul said back in Romans 11, Oh, the depth 
of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Only with God are the depths of true riches in wisdom and knowledge. I love what Paul says over in Colossians. That in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the only wise God, the true source of all wisdom. And so of all salvation, it ends with His glory. That's why we preach. That's why you're saved. That's why all of this stuff has come about. So that His name might be glorified. Because He saves you. And then He keeps you. And so you get all the security. So that He gets all the glory. He discloses to us His wisdom, His gospel. He calls us to obedience and faith. And by His power, He keeps us and establishes us. And we get all the security. And He gets all the glory. Amen? What a, way, what a great way to end a great book. To think about what God has done for us. To magnify His unspeakable work. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. But while you're standing, I just want to, I want to call to you. If you're here today and all this security, you don't know anything about it because all you know is the darkness of the guilt that you live in every day. The fears and the trials that go on in your own heart because you don't know Christ. You're here today God has appointed it that you hear this message so that you can respond. So that this glorious gospel which He accomplishes on your behalf, His mercy to disclose this truth that you couldn't find on your own. So you can respond to it in obedience to faith. We're going to sing a song here in a moment and pray And I just want to encourage you that if you need to respond in that way, please come see me. I'll be right up here as I always am. You can see any of our Sunday school teachers, any of our elders. We'd be glad to be able to explain to you exactly how this gospel has been been revealed to us and exactly how it saves us. Father, we're grateful for this time and so grateful for the gospel that's been made known to us. We're thankful knowing that It is you who has so gloriously saved us and you who so gloriously keeps us. So we can face whatever trial comes our way with the joy overflowing in our hearts. Indeed, Lord, we know that if we suffer together with him, we'll be glorified with him. We know that so many times uh, it is only by going through those trials and reaching the end of ourself that we really are fully prepared for the kind of praise that your gospel so demands and your person so deserves. I pray that you would do that work in our hearts individually and as a church. 
Send us from this place and every day singing of our God who saves us and keeps us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.